0: Beyond the Books is a podcast from the University of Edinburgh School of Literatures, Languages and Cultures that gives you a behind-the-scenes look at research and the people who make it happen. I'm Emma Aviette, a first-year PhD student of English literature and current postgraduate web and communications intern. Because of this last year, we've most likely all been having discussions about health and medical treatments, as well as how governments worldwide provide medical aid. Because of this, I thought it would be great to reach out to Anna Kemble, fourth-year PhD student at the University of Edinburgh, to discuss her research in the medical humanities. Anna focuses on a range of Indigenous writers across Australia, New Zealand, Canada, and the United States, exploring how texts from the 1980s through present day might be read alongside the ongoing governmental commitment towards promoting Indigenous mental health and improving health policies and practice. Anna's work looks at the tensions between indigenous ideas of health and wellness with Western settler government's healthcare systems. Beyond that, as a first-year PhD student, it was of personal interest to get a few tips from a PhD student who has made great use of her time. Even for non-students, I think Anna's responses are insightful and interesting and shed light on an exciting area of research. So stay safe, everyone, and thank you for listening. Okay, there we go. Hi, how are you doing?
1: Hi Emma, I'm I'm doing okay. I'm managing all right in lockdown mostly.
0: Yeah, it's been like a pretty crazy year. I think I was hoping that 2021 looked like it was going to be a little bit less of a crazy year, but I feel like it's, <laughs> it's so far continuing in the th- same pattern.
1: I think we all did. Um, I actually came home for Christmas like like a lot of students did and then lockdown was started so I'm still at my parents didn't didn't quite expect to um be away from Edinburgh for so long but we're making it work
0: gosh yeah no I know that happened to quite a few people um Hmm. but at least it's home and not anywhere else but hopefully we'll be back soon Hmm. so let's kind of just jump into it by um maybe you could give us a quick summary about who you are just how you came to the University of Edinburgh uh, a little bit about your background
1: yeah, um so I'm Anna Anna Kemble, and um I'm a fourth year PhD student on the English Literature program um at LLC and before that um I have done previous degrees including a master's in postcolonial literature at the University of Leeds. Um so I started my PhD back in 2017 which now seems like a very long time ago. Um but my PhD really i come from like i said like that postcolonial studies background but i've kind of specified even further into uh, the world of indigenous studies and settler colonial settler colonial criticism um and with a background in medical humanities which is an interdisciplinary field involving how health culture and you know all sorts of artistic creations are related as well as how we um we educate and reform medical practice um, and medical institutions in our societies. So it's quite interdisciplinary, but it, for me, it, was, it still comes down to a focus on studying how contemporary Indigenous authors are engaging with ideas of health and well-being at a time which medically, we've seen a lot of progress and development in health policy, and how uh, medical institutions are reforming how they treat indigenous patients, sort of the two in dialogue with each other.
0: Yeah. I mean, that sounds like a really incredibly necessary and important field of research. It's one of those things that when I, yeah, I mean, when I was reading about what you focus on, I'm like, of course, this is an issue. Like this is something that needs to have more light shed on it, especially during, like we were just saying, this pretty insane year that's been happening. Um, and so I know you said that you had a background also in post-colonial literature at your master's level. And then mm-hmm. one thing I want to touch on, I think, before I get and ask you more about that and about your post-colonial research is I know you also have a degree in both music and English. And I was wondering how you study those two things together.
1: Ultimately, it came down to the fact that they were my favorite two subjects at school. And I, I probably couldn't make my mind up, but... I'd always studied these uh, at school and in in college alongside each other. So it maybe seems like they're quite distinct subjects. But at the time of me doing my undergraduate degree, I was so used to thinking through these two disciplines in tandem that I just kept along that line of studying how we close read pieces of music. We close read texts, how we look at the cultural and historical context that, you know, inform artistic development. Whether it's narrative or music, that's so interesting.
0: I mean, that no, that definitely makes sense. I've never really thought about close reading music and applying some of the same skills that you use when you're close reading text. But I can see how that would open up a whole new realm and aspect of the music that you might not think about when you're just listening to it.
1: Yeah, I mean, whether it's uh, you know through a recording and listening, or whether you're literally like finding the the printed music and and orchestral scores and. You might be annotating, highlighting the same way that you would uh, a written narrative and learning, you know, learning to identify, learning the different components and, and how you would apply terms to certain structures, techniques, everything like that.
0: Would you ever think about producing an article where you kind of intertwine the two or research them in tandem?
1: Um, Probably not now. That, that's an interesting question, Um, but it's. I feel like as I've progressed through my master's and there is work that is related to music and music therapy in the medical humanities, for sure. Um, I haven't yet kind of found a way to make sense of like that triangle of indigenous literature, music and medical humanities. So it's maybe one plate too many to keep spinning all at the same time
0: so kind of shifting I guess more now in the more recent years then Um, I kind of wanted to know how did you get into indigenous literature and the medical humanities Um, I know that like you said they're two kind of separate fields that you're doing a really great job of combining Um, but did you just find an interest in both naturally or was that something that you saw in your coursework
1: so the the department I was based in at Leeds um, has quite a a well established reputation i'd say for having like postcolonial specialism within uh, their english literature degree a lot of brilliant um researchers are based there and you know that that isn't a recent thing for for the last uh, couple of decades um postcolonial studies has really been taught and, and studied at leeds so it was something that was readily available for me to take classes in um and um Alongside that, there was modules often offered by these very scholars who were, on one hand, post-colonial studies uh, researchers, and they were often modules in something I'd never heard of, which was the medical humanities. Um, So, you know, that that took my interest to see classes that were about how disability is represented or how um, narrative is such an important component in experience in illness discussing it with your doctor or medical professional and what's the relationship between narratives within literature and narratives within healthcare settings um it just really fascinated me when I was choosing modules for the final year of my degree um and from there I think something I really enjoyed about the medical humanities classes by this point of, of finishing my degree and I didn't know that I was going to go do a master's I I'm not someone who always knew I wanted to do a PhD so th- this wasn't in my mind then but um I I love the fact that the types of conversations I was having in the seminar room around um health and disability was often quite well matched to the conversations I would have within my family or my my social uh you know circle of friends in the way that we would be discussing how to Care for my grandmother with dementia, or or I have relatives with autism, and um, you know the way that narrative and autism were related in, in novels was a key component of these modules. So it, I think it made sense for me to make um, to incorporate a little bit of my own life and and the life outside of university with what I was studying, even if I wasn't personally studying the experiences of family members, I was learning a lot more about how we can approach these. Subjects and themes, as without being experts in medicine, right? Without being doctors, everyone can still relate to and gain meaning from stories and and representations of these illnesses that are special that are targeted. Sorry, to a general audience rather than a you know a very well trained medical expert of a doctor. Um. So it started from there. Really, it, they were my favorite classes, and they were the ones that. Excited me to go into the library and and keep on reading and, and keep learning more about these fields of study and how they've grown and developed. I think that's really interesting to hear that these
0: traditionally underrepresented areas like the medical humanities literature on mental health or literature on indigenous populations were an option for you during your undergrad and master's and PhD level studies. Do you think that's something that is becoming more accessible now? Are we shifting more towards that as a field? Or is there still a lot of work to do to, you know, really shed light on these really important areas that haven't historically had the spotlight?
1: I think we've we've definitely got the, um, the sense that that's what we should be doing. Um, and I'm not sure if ambition is the right word, but I can see, you know, in, in both Edinburgh and other departments, there is... Um, the drive to want to uh diversify or or incorporate more texts and writers and um bodies of work from from other culture I think the the challenging thing is to really critically question how we can go about that in in an ethical and, and a responsible way that isn't simply just like extracting Material, cultural material from one culture and saying, we can make use of this. It's fun to discuss this in a classroom. And it'd be completely devoid of like the meaning and significance from where that text or, or that artist has come from.
0: Definitely. I think that what you're saying is true. We as literature students are really kind of told there is the central canon of literature. That is the accepted field that we must know we must have memorized. And those are the books that are deemed as having been worthy of this you know, kind of transcendent position of classic literature. And it sort of leads to this belief that certain voices, traditionally, I mean, white male voices, are given this source of power over and over again instead of really including different perspectives um, and points of view. Do you think this literary canon issue is something that we're still having to figure out how to work with today?
1: Well, I'm sure it's that those methods that you employ or, or or the theory that you bring into how you go about reading even these canonical texts that can be really important and I, and that's been a huge part of um my thesis has been to think through how can you know i am a non-indigenous researcher so how can i go about this this project and um with with the firm belief that here in the UK we should be doing more to study indigenous literatures and and um and other forms of art but how can we do that in an appropriate way um without it almost history repeating itself where we the britain colonizes the world takes artifacts brings them into our institutions and and museums of power and you know suddenly they're valued but in a very contained way and i didn't want um uh, i don't want the way that uh, non-indigenous researchers do this kind of work i don't want it to mimic that process of extracting and, and containing and prescribing a value that's on my terms rather than on the terms of, of the culture. Yeah,
0: fair. I guess even just the way I was phrasing that, you know, bringing them into our canon, is that the way that we need to think about this or is it that sort of idea of making sure that we need to not redominate and claim ownership? of that literature so I think that's something that's a really interesting point and I guess that was one thing I was really interested about um, and one of the reasons why I really wanted to talk to you is coming from this different background from the authors of the books that you're reading most of the time how have you kept that in mind when you're looking at a new book what is the process like I guess about when you approach a new culture and you decide that that is the area that you want to learn about what are some resources that you go to to kind of educate yourself
1: well um at both master's level and and now in my PhD, I've been really fortunate to be supervised by, by non-Indigenous researchers who have done that type of work already within their career. Um, more specifically with uh, a Maori and, and a New Zealand context than with some of the other cultures I look at. So I've, from the beginning of my master's onwards, I've learned a lot from how, how they, they've done their work um and once you start digging through the the library and, and digging through some of the databases there is a lot of material out there especially aimed at settler scholars is, is the term I would, i'd use so that that's probably not quite appropriate for me as as a british non-indigenous person but whether it's how white canadians can research and uh, work in indigenous studies or how white americans white new zealanders um there's less uh, theoretical and, and methodological material out there for people like me who uh, then again removed and uh, studying from within a European context but it's um, it's a process. It, I, I don't think I will have had my like process completely refined by the the end of this PhD and um, you know I, I know researchers in Britain who are like you know professors who have full established careers and they they know they're always learning um how to to better enhance and and reform our methods of doing this type of work one thing that um is is important and it's probably something if i if i continue along this line of research i would want to engage with more especially once covid's over is how if if there was a narrow project i was doing that involved fewer uh cultures um then to, to really try and en- engage with in in collaboration and in partnership with people from that place um that's not exactly been possible when it, my phd is thematic and it's about bringing work from four broad indigenous cultures together and then you know, COVID happened, and other things that have just meant I've had to stay put in the UK. Um, but involving community and and learning directly, directly from uh, scholars and researchers. Um, is so I
0: would like to hear if this is okay because I know that obviously you're in the sensitive fourth year and you might not yet want to give too much detail about what your PhD is could you give me like kind of the broad thesis statement of what you're looking at in your PhD
1: yeah so um I very much locate my work in the the critical medical humanities or perhaps it's easier to understand the second wave of the medical humanities and part of that second wave um, which started around within the last 10 years has been to critically address the Western biases and assumptions of the field um, with the recognition that as we've been talking about, uh, you know, and with the recognition that there is far more um, to be learned and far more knowledges about health representations of health and medicine out there. How can the medical humanities work with that or, or incorporate that. So, so that's where my work is situated um, at this kind of turning point for, for the field as it sees how we could go about that project. And I look at how health and well-being has been represented by Indigenous authors in North America, Australia, and New Zealand in the last 30 years. It's, it's very much situated alongside a, a period of about 20 years where there has been a lot of development in how the medical institutions in these countries have reformed their their practices of health, their health policy, and thought how can we better um treat Indigenous patients? How can we incorporate an Indigenous workforce into our hospitals? How can we um incorporate the the knowledges of health, the the methods of healing that have been within these cultures for for centuries and centuries how can we bring that into perhaps a modern clinical space if you like so it's it's quite a specific theme but it's as soon as I started reading around um some of the the well-known and lesser-known indigenous authors who write in English health and this idea of of tying health to the strength of your culture the strength of language the strength of a community is, is very very important and it, it comes up time and time again. So I kind of knew I was, I knew there was a project in here somewhere because so many writers seem to be approaching a similar theme. I think it comes from having that recognition and probably all of us living through COVID have got a better, more grounded sense of that. But having that recognition that that medicine and navigating, um, navigating like improving your health or being treated for your health is so much more than than biomedicine and and so much more than like the, the clinical tests. It's about communication and culture and, you know, is there a, a shared sense of values, a shared like purpose related to how you, you treat someone or how you help a community to address trauma? Um, and a lot of these kind of wider themes about how medicine is so much more than a, a blood test or, or an X-ray have really like been forged in, in some of the earlier work in medical humanities. So that's been really useful for me to bring into dialogue with the holistic nature of indigenous health. Yeah, and- I
0: think this kind of reminds me of that, the article that I you know can talk about because it's been published and that you won the New Zealand Essay Prize <laughs> for, which is very impressive, um, which is Thank the you. names that we do not understand, reframing schizophrenia and spirituality in the people faces, which is a novel by Lisa Charrington. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And that is basically the story of a Maori woman, Nikki, and her brother, Joshua, and his diagnosis Mm -hmm. with schizophrenia. And I thought you did such an amazing job in that article, laying out that what the Western medical field in New Zealand thought of as this really impeding diagnosis that was something that needs to be medicated or worked through, or was really different to how his culture and his family was viewing the diagnosis, Um, And I was wondering if you could kind of speak a little bit, maybe explain more about that tension that's in the article that you kind of unravel.
1: Yeah, sure. Um, That material is something I developed um, in my master's dissertation. So it's stretching back a little (laughs) while now. But um, Lisa Charrington was, still is, but was such a fascinating author for me to study. I I no longer work with with that novel in my PhD thesis because I've I've written that material already but um uh, as well as being a writer uh Lisa Charrington who is Maori herself um is a very like prominent clinical psychologist in New Zealand um and so it was a wonderful novel to study alongside the the research that she has produced and and published um in like this In those fields of research, in psychology, she's been extremely interested in how, as we've been saying, how how Maori patients can better be treated in in mental health spaces. Um, She promotes uh, sort of not just certain approaches, but really approaches bringing Maori worldviews and and Maori uh, principles and and values into those spaces because often that will then, it it will make it a, a... not just a safer space, but a more appropriate space to, to treat the whole of of the patient, um, f- for whatever, you know, psychiatric illness that may be. And we see in the novel, um, something I was so interested in was how she was translating her research and her doctoral research almost into, into a novel. She, she discusses some of the like differences between Western, Western perceptions of schizophrenia and how it's, um, it's a much more complex issue in in Maori culture that it's some will see it as an illness sure but others will see it as a set of spiritual gifts or 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 somewhere in between it won't be pathologized or it wouldn't be seen like revered it's just something oh you know you hear voices of of perhaps deceased relatives that's a very normal experience um and so she kind of brings all of these worldviews. uh some contrasting some in in line with each other into the novel that is very it's narrated uh i'm I'm not sure if you've been able to read it but it's narrated by so many um members of joshua's family and with a few shorter passages of being narrated from the doctors themselves and so you really get so many perspectives from the positions of, of carers and relatives but also cultural perspectives um about this this person's condition um and something i was really trying to convey in the in the article is how we as readers are also invited into this space that even as a text it's almost mirroring some of the symptoms that that joshua feels a lot of confusion a lot of hearing voices that might not be there that we we're not sure what voices we can or can't trust um and so it well for for me personally you know having always sort of found I can learn a lot from literature this to me was a really rich way of learning about the different cultural worldviews surrounding it, in this sen- in this instance schizophrenia in a much more dynamic and participatory way than simply going and reading Charrington's research in in, in a psychiatric journal for example uh, and I liked the combination of being able to present these ideas in different in different discourses, as well as as in fiction, and learn more about a particular subject or topic through that experience of reading fiction. But we've always kind of got to keep in mind that this is not the same as as reading a case study. And I think that's where like the joys, but the difficulties of analyzing these, like you know, the the idea of a danger of a single story, and it, do we take this as being representative? Where do we see these moments of artistic license and fiction, and you know? entertainment come in and kind of inflects within these medical narratives, fictional narratives. I
0: think that was one thing that I noticed that you pointed out at the end, which is that Joshua's narration doesn't come in until the end, his own reflection on his, how they're trying to treat him basically. And at the end, it kind of focuses on him and reminds you that this is an individual and this whole kind of conversation around, do we how do we treat them? How do we combine all the culture? How do we combine, you know, what the Western medicine decides mm-hmm. is correct? I think that was a point that I thought you made quite well in the article that, like, well, there's also that room for the individual. And this is an individual story, even if there's way more than just one individual commenting on it and trying to decide mm-hmm. how it, you know, to treat this man. Where does the individual come in when you're also balancing in culture and you're also balancing in medical practice?
1: yeah it it certainly especially like you know as a western reader it's quite tantalizing like i just want to hear that person's voice straight away but um what i can't remember if i said this in the article right uh, way back when but i probably should have done um something that maybe would seem a bit unusual to us that his story especially about his schizophrenia is relayed by so many family members especially before his own story um and we might feel that impulse to really want the individual story first and foremost is slightly in opposition is too strong a word, I suppose. But it, it's more normal within within Maori culture to also include the perspectives and the, the stories of family members. And not as, as a secondary set of, of opinions, but as, as dynamic and interrelated, it's really important to have the experience the knowledge and the the version of events as relayed by Nikki and and relayed by his grandparents um that is an important aspect of promoting the the values that they have as as a Maori family discuss the whole family's health discuss how we can improve this experience for the whole family as well um so so it's a bit nuanced and and it's it's kind of There are key differences there, but perhaps not so binary opposite as as you might first think. So
0: shifting for a moment from the individual to the statistical point of view, if anything can erase the individual more than statistics, you've recently written a blog post called Post-Apocalyptic Peoples, COVID-19, Public Health and Native Americans, which explores the statistical erasure of Native Americans during the COVID-19 pandemic. Could you tell me a bit more about this post and what it discusses?
1: Yeah so um, this is a blog post I wrote towards the end of 2020. It It's still such a obviously you know we're still in the pandemic and it's such a raw um, ongoing situation but I wanted to start to make sense e- even if it was loosely and, and informally start to make sense of some of the things I've already been studying about settler colonial histories of health and medicine um, and the the current experience, uh, specifically in this case of, of Native Americans. And it's, I, I mean, it's out of my comfort zone, but it's something that was really surprising to me in the way that um, the, the pandemic and its impact on Native Americans was being reported, uh, was there was almost this hyper-visibility and this hyper-awareness in media articles or, or you know, by, by journalists, sort of this complete awareness of how the Navajo had been impacted and so in one sense, there was like a hyper-focused awareness, uh, very visual, plenty of photographs um, of, of what lockdown looks like there. In complete contrast, as the the various waves of the pandemic have unfolded over the last year, there's been a real problem and a real lack of consistency in how public health data has been collected, if at all, and reported. And, and it, obviously, it's such a complicated project to do in real time across 50 states um, but e- even as recently as, as last month when some of the latest figures revealed that Native Americans are the are the cultural and ethnic group in America with the highest rate of death due to COVID-19. Um, about, but, but as recently as, as these numbers are still coming in the, there's an acknowledgement from the CDC and others that this is a very inadequate data set um, and they predict that whilst they're saying probably about one in 450 Native Americans have died over the past year due to COVID and yet they say we expect the number is actually far greater than that so going back to the blog post I've kind of done a bit of a roundabout discussion there there's been a, a a long history of this idea of erasing Native Americans either quite frankly through through genocide and and through um warfare displacement or through like the erasing the, the the cultural awareness of native americans and and perpetuating stereotypes rather than the the lived actuality of of and varied actuality of um these people's lives it's it's easier to sort of point to a very skewed set of problematic images and say this is what a native american looks like rather than someone who lives in new york or chicago or los angeles and so when these cities are not um reporting uh, as they haven't done they haven't been reporting whether native american patients have had covid19 that they they just don't collect the data due to connected to culture and ethnicity it's then very hard for tribes and, and tribal governments to be aware of the scale of the problem and this theme of erasing the native or eliminating the native continues even in public health data, which I, I can only imagine will have further consequences, as well as the, the the very real grief of such a a significant loss that that is still happening. It could potentially, as as this health crisis gets historicized and researched, and people look into it, if we don't have the information. How are we going to be able to draw like reliable conclusions or allocate appropriate resources, appropriate funding, research resources, and medical resources if the problem seems a lot less than what it might actually be? There's a really um, when I was writing this blog post, there was a really provocative quote for me from um, the director of the Urban Indian Health Institute, and and there's a real significant problem in in not collecting the data in some of the United States major cities, but the director. Abigail Echo Hawk said, you know, if the data doesn't exist, we don't exist, because that's ultimately how the governments are going to respond. And, you know, it's, it's really
0: challenging. Beyond that statistical erasure, do you find there to be cultural erasure of Indigenous
1: populations
0: within the general public?
1: You know, uh, uh, whether it's my students, or whether it's my friends, like, just sometimes it's out of like sheer surprise that even to hear that indigenous writers write in English um and publish best-selling books you know books that will hit the New York Times bestseller list um and that look of surprise or oh I I never thought of that especially here in the UK has happened to me like often enough that I think just there's a clear there's a clear lack of uh, of awareness and a kind of a very old-fashioned idea of what we might think of when we hear the terms Australian Aboriginal or, or Native American. We probably don't think of 21st century writers. So I do think there's a lot to um, be said for how, like, first of all, awareness of their very presence uh, and, and awareness of a, a modern, contemporary presence, but then through that, an awareness of our colonial histories and and what has happened to um really, really affect and, and impact whether it was related to health or other issues, impact Indigenous communities. That can then come once you actually realise that there are Indigenous people who speak English and who write novels and and who live in ordinary lives in the twenty first century. I think because we're at a geographical distance here in in the UK, there's a, a much less awareness of that. Um, I mean, I can only hope it will improve. And and I think it is improving, whether that's through certain novelists being awarded very, very prestigious uh, literary prizes, or whether it's even through something like this summer, a lot of native and indigenous film festivals obviously had to go online because of the pandemic um, rather than take place uh, across North America. And then that you know suddenly broadens out. You can have a global audience engaging with some of the most recent Indigenous filmmakers and appreciate and valuing their work in a way that would never have been possible in other years.
0: The only upside, I think, of the pandemic has been that so many more things are accessible this year digitally, which, um, yeah. I need. I always feel guilty when I haven't taken an, enough advantage of all the things that are just a Zoom click away. But
1: I know there's there's too many, and then and then you think at some point I need to rein in. And like, there's almost too many book festivals in a calendar year for you to just continually go and attend all the events. A hundred percent. It's it's good thesis procrastination though.
0: So I guess kind of talking about research and thesis procrastination, I was wondering as you know you're 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 in your fourth year of your PhD. And I'm in my first, although it's, you know, quickly coming into to a close and all the deadlines are looming for me. Do you have any advice for either pacing or enjoying it or, or taking the time to actually appreciate what you're doing or also telling yourself to not take too much time and appreciate, but to speed it up and get on with it?
1: I'm probably not the right person to talk to about speeding up because I think I like like it still feels like I'm taking longer than I should even though there is a pandemic on right now. Um, I'm sure some of the advice, especially when I think of my first year, because that'll just have been so different to what your first year has been like with it just being all virtual. Um, mm-hmm. But I think the first year and, and moving into the second year is a really good time to work out between you and your supervisors, like what's the best work working relationship for you all? And, and what does that look like? Um, you know, do you do you prefer to be supervised with a fairly like like um small level of detail or do you prefer to like be let loose and then just kind of be guided back to your thesis after reading all these wonderful new things so so working on um on how best both you and your supervisors like i guess expectations and how you work together once you can like find that balance where where everyone feels this is a really effective working relationship and everyone's meeting each other's expectations um that will like really help in in later years as, as it becomes you know a bit more pressured to to write and, and produce the the research you know you don't I suppose you don't want to find yourself like asking for particular type of feedback and then they give you a completely different style and it can be really disheartening but actually there's just been a miscommunication there um, about what you would really value and what approach is best for you other pieces of advice I would say uh, may, maybe this is already happening to you I'd say don't be afraid about about your project changing and developing um that's that's definitely been the case for me even even given the fact that my master's dissertation and then what this thesis will be that they are linked um and I was ex- I was expecting the connection to be closer than than it's going to be uh, by the time the thesis is finished so don't be afraid about Going in new directions, you know, maybe realizing that oh, you've reached a bit of a theoretical dead end, and you need to go down another path, even though that can be frustrating. I think, and it's tempting to think of that as like wasted time. I think it's actually better to frame it as you know, this is this is the sign of like how much work you've put into it since doing your proposal and and since starting the PhD. You know, if if you're working full or part time on a project, of course, your ideas are going to develop and change over the course of of months and years so uh, i wouldn't be concerned if you see the project morphing into something you weren't expecting
0: i think that's something that i definitely needed to hear a little bit so thank you yeah. for that
1: oh good um and i guess that kind of
0: also what the, brings up the question that i wanted to ask is how do you feel about now that this is getting towards the end of your time as a phd candidate and mm-hmm. and that um again, like not to be I don't want this question to be intimidating or anything like that because given everything you've done, I'm sure it's going to be a very smooth transition. But how do you true. feel about that transition coming up like what are your thoughts and emotions, or what are you hoping for the
1: next couple of years? Well, um, it does feel a little bit tricky to even like find the headspace that's outside of this thesis at the moment, but I would love to continue in a, in a broader way of um, working both within Indigenous studies and medical humanities. I'd, I'd love to carry on and do a postdoc, although I'm not quite sure what that would look like or how closely related it would be to the thesis. I guess we'll see when I've got a bit of, reclaimed a bit of my headspace back. Um, but it right now it's tough to think about What's next, and the extent the extent to which postdocs and, and job opportunities have been affected by COVID is something I try not to think about too much right now because it's it's definitely there. Um, uh, I'm I'm not quite sure how much things will bounce back to what uh, the job market or the the postdoctoral opportunities were before COVID maybe we'll bounce back um, in time but it's definitely that that's the route I would like to go down and publish a few more sections of, of my thesis um, once it's done and the corrections are done.
0: You've had the support of the Arts and uh, Humanities Research Council and I was wondering um, how has that kind of affected your time as a PhD candidate? I know they have lots of opportunities for training and meeting people and networking. And I just kind of wondered if you could speak a little bit about your experience with them.
1: Yeah, so um, the the support, uh, both like financial and through through tra- training and opportunities that's offered by the AHRC is kind of then, um, it's delivered regionally. So I, I, I would also say I'm uh, funded by SAGSA, by, by the Scottish Graduate School of Arts and Humanities um, as the Scottish uh, region um regional graduate school and I mean the first thing to say is like I simply couldn't have done this PhD without that financial security and backing and and I I know I'm incredibly fortunate to have had that um also I'm I'm incredibly uh, fortunate that when the pandemic hit and and that initially came at the end of our third year, so the end of our funding period, that obviously brings up a lot of uncertainty. And with with facilities, libraries, offices closing, that kind of slows down the rate of work. So we were very lucky that SAGSA was able to give us funded extensions um for 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 a period of time to cover that uh upheaval. And, you know, that's so, so the the quick answer is it's, you know, the the financial security that's meant I can completely like research full-time uh and, and be paid to do that is is uh, an incredible blessing to have and then like as well as that i think um you know llc is uh, quite a quite a big department uh for a graduate school there's, there's plenty and we're lucky to have so many graduates working alongside each other from disciplines um not every university department quite looks like that so um the saxa cohort and being able to meet with and get to know other arts and humanities researchers is, is really useful um there's probably more opportunities or or more types of training and uh skills-based d- development work than any one candidate can make use of but uh, i know people who've been able to do um internships that's that's really enhanced their their thesis or they've been able to spend a semester at at a college or university abroad and that's been supported by SAGSA um to, to really enhance their their PhD career trajectory um it's also something I've really appreciated about SAGSA over the last few years is not just the training um or the the workshops that they they themselves organise, but they're always interested in hearing from us ourselves as a cohort what training needs we've identified. You know, perhaps it's because it lies outside of our discipline or outside of our, um, our departments, you know, uh, as the all of the universities in Scotland, they can't offer very identical, consistent programs of training uh, across every, each and every department. So SAGSA is is very willing to like support your own ideas of organising training and and workshops that um you know may, maybe they weren't aware that you weren't being trained on a particular skill set, but you've realised it's really useful and there's a need for it within the whole whole cohort. So it does um it's it's a very dynamic process that really helps sort of. Improve our skills as researchers.
0: I've not had any interaction with SAGSA, but just in Scotland in general, mm. I find the ability to listen to critique from the student population at the University of Edinburgh even has been really something I wasn't expecting. Mm-hmm. So it's good to hear that that continues up higher than even just the university level, that the people who are producing this funding aren't just doing it to do it, but to actually listen and improve yeah. that training. Mm-hmm. That is great. Okay, so. I guess let me just see I don't want to take up too much of your time but I have one question more that I usually ask i trying to ask everyone because okay. again I'm from the US so I've lived here now since 2018 mm-hmm. but I have not been able to drive during that time and there's so much of the UK that I want to see um but I was wondering where is your favorite place to visit in Scotland and why
1: well it's actually actually not too far from Edinburgh so you probably wouldn't need to drive a a bus or a train might be enough um so (laughs) that's what i like to hear (laughs) when when we can do all of that my dad was uh grew up in edinburgh and uh his side of the family is scottish so um although they're no longer with us, when my grandparents retired, they moved out to uh, East Lothian and and to a small village near the the coast. So it's not that far away from Edinburgh. But my favourite place has to be um, Tinningham Beach, which is quite close to Dunbar and Belhaven Bay. But that's where summer holidays were spent and birthdays and bonfires and you know, it's it's where sort of all of the extended family would congregate at a granny and granddad's house and lots of weekends spent on the beach. So that was, that's probably still my favourite place. And and once I'm back in Edinburgh and once we can travel more than five miles or whatever it is, I'll definitely be uh, going for some more walks out there. I mean, that sounds
0: lovely. I I think I really need to take advantage of the Scottish beaches a bit more. I know they're not necessarily what you think of as like the ones that you lay out on a blanket but I'm actually I grew up spending my summers on the Oregon coasts in right. America which is very similar weather wise so mm-hmm. it will make me I think somewhat homesick for that and oh. also very excited to see more of it I think that sounds absolutely lovely and if I can get there like you said without <laughs> spending a couple hours and a couple <laughs> hundred pounds on a <laughs> train ticket then I'm yeah I'm very excited
1: that sounds yeah, lovely there's so many more parts of Scotland I'd love to see, but not having a car in Edinburgh has been a little bit of a, a limiting factor in that sort of not quite being able to just drive up into the highlands or the Cairngorns as, as some of our yeah. friends do. But
0: Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And if hopefully soon we'll be able to do that and, yes. and not get in trouble.
1: Yeah. <laughs> so share cars with other human beings again. Oh.
0: <laughs> the dream. <Yeah>. Seriously. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for joining me today. I think that it's been amazing. So thank you. Beyond the Books is a podcast from the University of Edinburgh School of Literatures, Languages, and Cultures. Thank you so much for listening today. And keep an eye posted for new content, which is coming soon.